Helo a chroeso i bodlediad yr Academy Genedlaethol ar gyfer arweinyddiaeth a ddysgol yng Nghymru. Podlediad sy'n rhannu materion ac arferion arweinyddiaeth allweddol ar draws y sector addysg yma yng Nghymru ac yn rhyngwladol. Hello and welcome to the podcast from the National Academy for Educational Leadership in Wales, a podcast that shares key leadership issues and practices across the education sector here in Wales and internationally. Thank you for joining our podcast today, where we're focusing on innovation in education. I'm Sue Roberts, I'm head teacher at Scalford Dyffryn in Plandidno and an associate with the National Academy for Educational Leadership. I'm joined today by fellow educational leaders, Elaine Sharpling and James Knight. And we're also joined by Larry Shulman, who facilitated the second innovation series for the Leadership Academy last year. Now, Larry is definitely one of those people who makes you think, and his enthusiasm is infectious. And on his website, he's described as a chief provocation officer and a dealer in possibility. If we'd all just say hello, that's okay, introduce ourselves briefly, we can begin our discussion around innovation. Elaine, should we start with you? Yeah, thank you, Sue. So hello, everybody. Welcome to this podcast. I'm Elaine Sharpling, and I'm the Director of Teacher Education at the University of Wales, Trinity St. David, very much invested in working with the next generation of teachers. Thanks, Elaine. That's great. And James? Morning, everybody. Boradar. My name's James Knight. I'm a primary school head teacher in Brynnerford Primary School in Swansea. I've got a much shorter job title than everybody else. And I know both James and Elaine, you've been involved, I think, within your settings at accessing uh, some of the innovation funding through the Leadership Academy. I think that's right. So you've got that interest in innovation before we start. And now, not forgetting Larry. Hi, everybody. I'm Larry Shulman, and I have the privilege and pleasure of working with great leaders like Elaine and James all across lots of different sectors and just exploring possibility with them. So it's a fantastic job and I I love it. Fantastic, thanks Larry. Thanks all for joining us. Right, okay, let's start off the discussion by looking a little bit at how innovation looks practically right now in relation to Curriculum for Wales, the ALN reform, and obviously, can't forget it, coming out of a pandemic. We'd like to start us off. Wow, yeah, certainly we're at a very interesting time. And I know that's said over the centuries, isn't it, for education. Uh, there's never been a better time to be involved in education. But post-COVID especially, I think it has changed our mindset on how we deliver things, how we think about things. It's brought into question, hasn't it, our Uh, certainties and our stabilities in in our communities that surround us and especially viewing wider world events. Um, So for me, it is a time now to sort of grasp the nettle and take what we have learned from the pandemic forward and to make that discernment, I suppose, as a leader in what has worked, but also what has been lost. Uh, from this blended learning experience, this uh, more isolated way of working, this more screen-driven way of working. We've got to sort of put it all in a pot now and do a bit of sorting and sifting because not everything 
was an innovation worth taking forward. And maybe I'll throw this out to James and Larry that, you know, when the status quo is disrupted, then sometimes it's not disrupted for the better. I think I'd agree with you there, Elaine. Um, I've seen I've seen two people groups really come to the fore from the uh, pandemic, particularly uh, one who are now really equipped and feel better able to deal with change and adapt uh, to situations they're in. So innovation now is something that they're a lot more comfortable with. And then another people group um, who've been completely thrown by it all and are really struggling to try and find some sort of new normal and uh, some sort of stability in the middle of so much change. Um, so I'm finding as a leader that there's sort of two approaches I'm having to take with innovation at the moment. One which is to um, help people who need a bit of stability and um, understand that change and innovation is a positive thing, something they can be excited about. Um, but then also that other group who are already uh, running full pelts at embracing change and uh, wanting to make things better. Yeah, you're making me think about this kind of dilemma, isn't it, of where, as we emerge from this and, and people are exhausted and, and, and battered and bruised, do we keep going full force towards all the exciting things we plan to do pre-pandemic or is it a time to kind of batten down the hatches and, and be a little bit more cautious? And, I, you know, I'm torn and actually I think being torn is fine because for different organisations and different people, it will apply differently. But I'm worried about those leaders who are maybe a little bit cut off from the real effects of the pandemic on their people who might be saying, now it's time to get, let's get back to that fantastic, those strategic plans that we had and, and everything else. Um, on the one hand, and on the other hand, do we do people a disservice by saying, right, let, the new normal is, let's not be too ambitious here. Let's just try and deliver what we've got and make, and it's probably something in between, isn't it? Hmm. Mm -hmm. I think I've become a little bit more cautious using the phrase new normal because I, can, I feel like by saying new normal, people expect things to get into a new routine that actually doesn't change. And the idea that innovation is a sort of constant change um, process um, doesn't really lend itself, I'm finding, to the words new normal. But I'm not sure what you have felt and experienced with that. Yeah, I, I, I think that too. I don't like the term new normal. Um, but I was wondering, does effective innovation need to come from a place of stability or does it come from this state of flux and energy and uncertainty? I don't know, Larry, you've probably got the greatest insight and experience of that. Is it better to have people on a more stable footing before they leap or shall we just all leap about anyway? It's so hard to say, isn't it? Because I, I'm tempted to say it's the latter of those. It's 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 the instability, isn't it, that that produces new thinking and everything else. Because if nothing else, and, and you certainly know this better than I, the way in which particularly education organisations reacted to the pandemic, I heard leaders telling me things were happening in their organisations that they almost wouldn't have thought were possible. And if they tried to introduce them in any kind of situation before then, it wouldn't have happened. And suddenly people were able to do all kinds of things they weren't able to do. So when forced to into a situation, you know, we know from around the world how people cope with really difficult situations and, and where their minds and their hands go in those moments. I'm tempted towards the, the latter of those, Elaine, definitely. 
I'm not sure it comes easily from stability because I suppose stability produces comfort mm. uh, a lot of the time. And and it's quite hard to shift yourself out of that comfort. Maybe maybe it is about discomfort. And then we have to perhaps turn to James's idea then of offering support to those people who would not find innovation exciting or have an appetite for it at the moment. I think you're both right there, just to come in. I mean, we are at such an exciting time in education in Wales at the moment. You know, we've got a new curriculum ahead. There's a lot, you know, everybody's feeling, I'm going to use the, the word overwhelmed with everything that we've been through um, over the last you know, 18 months, two years now, isn't it? It's, but I think innovation is so important. For me, one of the key things is that it mustn't be coming from the top. It, may, it you know, it must be inspiration is the word. It, I, I, I think that's so important that your staff are driven and they have those opportunities. I don't know about you. How do you find that, James? Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think. Um... I think inspiration maybe is part of what we were mentioning earlier. Um, it seems to me that um, during the pandemic, one of the question marks above the idea of having stability and finding comfort in certain situations is linked to people's well-being, uh, which obviously is a, has been a huge part of the pandemic and is something that a lot of people are asking questions about now. Um, I was recently reading about comfort and discomfort and um, apparently the word comfort is a relatively new word to English. Um, it comes from the Latin con and fortis uh, meaning with strength. So the idea of comfort is about uh, being strengthened and it was used by the French first of all in terms um, of architecture and looking at parts of buildings that were strengthening other parts of buildings. So the idea of being comfortable really would be linked to being strengthened and so when considering well-being and the idea of um, maybe strong innovation practices um, there surely has to be an element of comfort in there so how you get people to a place of comfort so that you can have strong innovative practice I'm not sure um, it's going to be the same in every context because every body is different um, but there's definitely a strong element of well-being involved with any innovative work I think. I wonder if that then um, links to the idea of professional self-care uh, mm. and, and that being able to build your own comfort, then your own inner strength and, and how we how we do that in in our teams. Otherwise, well-being can be a very general term, can't it? That's everyone's saying oh what about my well-being got to think about people's well-being um but how do we how do we build in that professional self-care mm. that yeah, al allows innovation and you made me think um elaine and james about you know do you even build in this word inspiration self-care um inspiration etc where does it come from because for me for too long everything has had to come from the leader and and uh, so I must inspire my staff. I must motivate people. I need to take care of their well-being. And of course, there is a responsibility to set an environment in which those things happen. But for me, this word that's coming up, up a huge amount in my work is agency. Um, where does the ownership really sit? Do we spend a lot of our time inspiring people, trying to convince people of things, 
getting what is it getting them on board how mm. to in what's these phrases how to engage people with change I think we're missing a trick here because I think sometimes we forget we're dealing with adults and I think sometimes we treat them like children and I think there's something about people finding their own agency because if they can't find their if we can't help them find their own inspiration their own meaning etc I think it's really hard then to kind of just spend your time doing it to people Mm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I want to be done to. I think I want to find it. <laughs> yeah, I found it really interesting over the last year or so, um, engaging with uh, coaching practice um, and looking at Kirsty Williams' agenda for a coaching culture within education in Wales, um, as she set out in a national mission uh, document. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned that, Larry, about um, treating people as adults. Um, one of the books I'm reading at the moment is called The Science of Stuck by Brett Frank, uh, Britt Frank. And she actually talks a lot about self-parenting and how um, by self-parenting, we actually stop outsourcing um, the, the responsibility for our own self-care. Uh, so if we don't self-parent, we're outsourcing um, our self-care and our sense of well-being becomes um, affirmed by other people. Um, so she talks a lot about our inner child and our inner cast <laughs> members and how do we deal with those inner cast members. Um, and I found that coaching is actually a really helpful way of going about that. Uh, I'm in the learning process at the moment of working out how coaching is going to work within my context and what coaching culture is like but because of the nature of coaching I feel like the, the, it does kind of break down that hierarchy and gives people that intrinsic inspiration and intrinsic aspiration towards new things yeah absolutely I really and like you- that idea I think that um, one of the things that I took away from um, Larry's uh, program was getting the right people around the table it really struck me that often uh, as a leader you can have the same people around the table um you know your senior leaders and then it drifts down through the hierarchies uh, but james the that idea of self-parenting means that people almost have an entitlement to have the right people around their table um and it's only through that the agency will will take place because, you know, as leaders, we, we don't know what is happening in a certain place at a certain time with a certain group of learners and a certain group of staff, do we? We, we only have a small insight into that. And it's the people who are at that table in that context that need to have that agency. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love this self-parenting thing, James. I hadn't heard about it, and I'm, I'm definitely going to look into this because it comes from exactly where I'm coming from, but I've never heard of it. And, and you made me think about this coaching thing. You're right. The coaching thing is, is the ideal set of skills, not for, just for any leader, but for any colleague, isn't it? Mm. To help. Um, there was a program once in further education they did years ago. It's a fantastic thing. It was an informal kind of coaching thing where colleagues would coach each other and people would go up to each other and say, I need, I've got this problem. I need 20 minutes. Can we go for a walk? And they'd use their coaching skills to help the other person explore an issue. And it's building a coaching culture um, as opposed to all these 
things that happen. Leaders, coach, managers, coach, managers need to have coaches. Of course they do. Of course they do. But actually, can we build a culture where people are asking people really helpful questions to enable people to explore mm. their own their own agency in doing something? Mm. Um, and challenging questions sometimes as well, because there's those people who resist taking up their agency in something, and we've got to break, help them break through that. So I, I really love that. I love mm. that. Just pulling that all together now, you know, and thinking about well-being, because you, you, you've all mentioned that. So as a leader, how do you aspire and spark the imagination of your team? You know, let, let's think about, is it ethical at this point in time to be asking our staff to be innovative? I'd like to think so, or I'd like to think what your thoughts are. Well, I was actually at one of the um, National Academies uh, conference uh, just before the pandemic. Uh, one of the workshops I was in uh, was led by one of the secondary uh, schools. I think it was their head teacher. And they mentioned um, one of their approaches to innovation, which actually all these years later, I've now finally been able to put into practice, which is great. Uh, and I would say that it has definitely helped the well-being of staff here. And it has um, given them space to reflect, which I think is really key, um, because we live in such a busy time of life. Um, in such busy jobs that just having that time to reflect often um, I'm finding is the key factor to enable people to engage in coaching or anything um, particularly innovative. So um, in a practical way on a Monday morning in our school um, I released the teachers in each year group on a rolling program so um, because there's eight year groups in the school there's eight weeks between um, the times when they have their innovation time with me, which is basically a little mini group coaching time, but it's uh, informal at the moment rather than formal. So like you were saying, Larry, that there's definitely something about informal coaching strategies um, that allows people to engage more openly and freely. It's not quite so... Uh, um, uh, what's the word? It doesn't make people so defensive then to engage in informal coaching strategies. So... Um, I have members of staff in um, with me and we talk about what's going well, what's not going well, all the informal sort of conversation that you would want. Sometimes that's led to some action research. Um, so I've got a colleague at the moment um, who's now engaged with Shirley Clark's work on intrinsic motivation um, and how that works out in uh, class. Um, but other people have just uh, ended up doing some team building, really, around creating a shared vision for the cohort of children they're working with or understanding maybe a little bit better the challenges that certain groups within the cohort are facing. Mm -hmm. So just having that time to reflect has really kind of given people a broader mindset to engage with that sort of innovation. I really like that because uh, I think that there can be a misconception that innovation is linked to activity all the time, intense activity. Um, and we've all, what I call it, gadget thinking, uh, where, you know, we've all got kitchen cupboards filled with gadgets that have been uh, innovators of the experience, and then we've never used them again and turned to the ordinary saucepan. And I, th I think that you've linked that there, James, to stillness. And that part of innovation is that time for stillness. And we call it uh, in our team, the art of noticing, uh, you know, just to reflect and think, what have you noticed um, about your practice, about the students, about the program, about content, about curriculum, whatever. And then wh why have you noticed this? What are your concerns about this? What have your experience of 
noticing. But I really like the idea of linking the innovation to reflection and quieter times. Mm. It's really lovely that that noticing. Oh, I love noticing. And um, uh, anyone who's done any work with me knows that I'm a huge fan of pressing the pause button and enabling other people to press the pause button. In fact, that's one of the best things we could probably do as a leader is giving people the space to press their own pause button and not pressing it for them, which is another thing. And yeah, I, I see I think innovation is from the smallest, isn't it? It's actually because when we start talking about big innovations, actually people want to be able to do things that are going to revolutionize their own work and make and make the impact that they have um, even greater. And giving people some space and time to really understand for them um, what's important. Um, I thought, Sue, when you asked a question, you know, it's actually about enabling people to find real meaning. And, and and backing them up when they want to, you know, make that meaning into whatever it is they want to make it. And I'm, I'm really worried about top-down-led innovation now. I'm really worried about it. And I'm worried about, I'm even trying to, I've got this new phrase, which is, isn't particularly revolutionary, but it's called democratising strategy. And I, I just feel that strategy should not be the, you know, owned by the team at the top who come down, and they come down, don't they? And they, they, they take you through their 10, 50 point, 50 <laughs> slide presentation of the new strategy. And you sit there and you go, that's very interesting. Thank you very much. I'm going to get back to my job now. And I think there's something about let's, let's build this strategy together with the people who actually understand the job. And um, so let's democratize the process. And then re recently I, I did a, a new strategy with a charity and they only had a hundred people. Or I should say they had 100 people and um, we got all 100 involved in developing that strategy. And I think there's something really powerful about that for the individual. Uh, I must mention something else as a big bugbear that uh, maybe relates to this. Um, you're bringing out my, my uh, slightly more challenging head here. Um, I was asked to a session with, uh, sorry for any of uh, any leaders out there who've done this, but um, I wouldn't apologize too much because I was asked to do a session with a senior leadership team to define the values of the organization. And I refused to do it. And I said, and they said, oh, why? I said, well, you could get someone else to do that. That's fine, but let me just give you a piece of advice. So we're going to sit down with six people and we're going to define the values that people hold in this organ. That, you know, the values of the organization are the values of the people within it. I said, um, and what we'll do is we'll come out with our list, you know, the usual innovation, openness, honesty, all the rest of it. Uh, first of all, they'll be vanilla. But secondly, and then we're going to tell the organization what their what its values are. I love that. By the way, that happens all the time. I should tell you, it still happens. And I think it's revolting. Um, no offense to anybody. Um, if you want to do a piece of work around values, get the organization involved in understanding you know, what's important to them and let's produce the values of the organization as the organization sees it. So I just thought I'd mention that because it's linked, isn't it? It's linked to this kind of top down or how people find their own agency or something. I think that's so relevant to us in Wales. We're all laughing away there. But, you know, we're at that point where we're all looking at developing a high level curriculum. And it's been an important aspect to all of us. Um, that's been the first part, really. That's where you've got to focus. It's on that vision and values. And I think that's been the key, ensuring that everybody has been involved with that, that it's not top down, that it is everybody's perspective. So that, that's really key, what you've been saying there. Mm. Uh, Larry, appreciate that. 
I find it really interesting the whole debate about hierarchy, to be honest, because uh, I know we're living in a society and I've grown up with the idea that egalitarian systems are something to aspire to and that, um, that that when you've got a hierarchy that somehow there's an abuse of power involved with it and that uh, people will be get trodden on and squashed and they, they won't have any individuality and space for themselves but um, when I was uh, reading a book called The Culture Map Erin um, Mayer the author was talking about how different cultures around the world have different personalities um, so, for example, in China, um, their entire society and culture is very hierarchical um, in comparison to many others. Um, but the difference in that sort of Confucian system is that there are very defined roles within the hierarchy. And so the people who are uh, higher up the hierarchy actually have a really strong duty of care and pastoral care for the people who are in the system. They're subordinates, for want of a better term. Um, and the subordinates um, then obey and um, do what the person higher up the hierarchy says, um, trusting that that person actually has got their best interests at heart and is looking out for them. So I think that sometimes there's this, there's a little bit of a juxtaposition about what sort of roles we play. Um, and I think one of the keys then is that everybody is clear about what their role is as part of the team. So whether it's a little bit more hierarchical, because there might be times when you need to use a more hierarchical leadership style. So long as people are clear about what their role is and that there is that sort of um, trusting ethos to what's happening, I think that there's not necessarily a problem. Disagreeing, Larry, sorry. You're not, dis you're not <laughs> disagreeing. <in> situations. <laughs> um, with that idea... Um, you probably guessed already, but I quite like talking. And <laughs> um, uh, one of my problems um, that, Elaine, I think you're probably much better at this than me. Um, one of the problems I'm finding is that in co coaching sessions, um, pressing that pause button, like you said, Larry, is to be more of a questioner um, than someone who makes statements. I really struggle with that. Um, but I suspect I'm not the only head teacher who struggles with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm trying to teach myself good questioning techniques and good ways to create space yeah, for people absolutely. to do their own thinking. And I think that's probably the role of a, a leader creating inspiration and innovation somewhere. Yeah, we've been working on that a bit with our innovation funding, actually. Um, uh, with student teachers, the great temptation when you... Uh, they ask for feedback or you give feedback is just talk at them uh, and just talk at them endlessly. And then you walk away from the conversation conversation thinking, well, I, I've done a brilliant job. I gave them such great feedback. Uh, and they're sitting there in an absolute kind of fog with all power taken away from them, all agency taken away from them, a list of 25 targets to work from. <laughs> They've got no idea of where to start. Um, so we've been looking at that role, James, uh, we've called it the role of the discussants, uh, where it's the um, the listening and the questioning role rather than the talking role. Uh, I think that's really interesting. You made me think, Elaine, about um, there's a lovely framework called the four player model by somebody called David Cantor, who's a family therapist. And so it comes from the world of family therapy. And he says that for conversations to be really effective, we need to ensure that four rules are taken up. One is there has to be a move, so someone has to initiate something. 
But to counter that move, there also has to be an oppose because so we get a bit of challenge going on. But if you just have move and oppose, it's like a tennis match and you just watch this thing and going back and forth and we're all sitting there going, okay, this is some kind of competition that happened between the two of them. But there's two other fundamental rules that come in. Um, and one is called follow. These are all active rules. And to follow as an active rule, it doesn't just mean go, you know, um, Elena, I agree with you or something. It says, you know what, I think that's a brilliant idea. And what we could do with it is if that's a follow. And then there's this fantastic rule called bystand. And bystand is the opposite of what it means. Bystand means you take this kind of helicopter view and you say, hang on a second, what's going on here? Or what's the focus of this conversation? Or you know, all those big questions that keep us on track or make us think slightly differently. And that combination is really important. And it, you know, to your point, James, it combines advocacy and inquiry, which mm. is the thing we're, we're all mm. struggling with as leaders, by the way. The best coaches in the world are sitting there going, oh, I've got so many ideas here that I want to share. But, you know, the question is, you know, uh, are they just going to end up, I'm going to end up trying to convince them of something. So I just, I thought that's, it's really interesting if we could have that balance in our conversations where those, those roles, and in fact, I've done an exercise once where I've watched the group and had my columns with the four rules and then fed back to the group how, how much balance there was in the conversation or imbalance as there often is. And that can be quite helpful. It makes me think about when I'm taking, so now I'm doing a move, aren't I, right? <laughs> and James has occasionally done an oppose and we've occasionally each of us done a bit of a follow, you know? And so it's quite interesting to watch yourself and say what's needed here to keep the conversation in balance which means you have to have both brains switched on, don't you? Because you have to be involved in the conversation and be keeping in mind your whole emotional intelligence stuff. I wonder whether there's a there's some sort of link there between what Elaine was saying earlier around uh, who you have around the table um, and the idea that <laughs> um, valuing diversity <laughs> is actually really helpful in being able to problem solve and move forward and make any sort of improvement or innovation yeah i i i think there is a strong link then i'm I, i'm thinking of a particular example where um just a tiny group of student teachers two or three of them um looked at a particular thing in school that they, they, they had noticed uh, that uh, teaching assistants were very skilled at supporting children's reading in this in a particular aspect and they wanted to find out more about this um, so they they did some focus groups they chatted to people they observed uh, and then they the whole outcome of this endeavor that they were on was then to present back to the school's leadership team and so they presented this back to them and the leadership team was so struck by what they'd noticed that they rolled out the whole training program that the teaching assistants had been on to the whole school. So, but without having student teachers round the leadership table, they, they wouldn't have had that insight. And without the teaching assistants having student teachers round the table, those two tables wouldn't have come together. That's really interesting, Elaine, because you mentioned about um, that made me think about uh, this concept of the empty chair. Mm. And when I first saw this concept of the empty chair, which is the idea that, um, you know, you imagine you keep a chair empty around the table to for a key stakeholder. And, and you, you ask this really clever question of if that stakeholder was sitting here right now, what would they say? <laughs> 
And it was introduced years ago by some you know, management guru. And and you can probably tell by the tone of my voice where I might be going with this. When it was introduced, I was like, that's fantastic. We should all have an, I think I even employed it at an empty chair. You know, you'd have an empty chair representing the student or an empty chair representing, you know, one of the trustees of a charity, if it was a charity, wherever it may be. Uh, the customer, there was always the customer. You know, if the customer was here, you know, in businesses, what would they say? And, and then about five years after that happened, I went, it's great, but why don't we actually just get them around the table <laughs> and actually hear from them instead of interpreting what we think? Because, of course, if we interpret what they think, they would say that would be full of our own bias anyway. Mm. And, and so it was ridiculous. So actually, as you said, Elaine, let's get those people around the table who really know what's going on mm. and and part of our sense making is to I think too much sense making is done on our own and part of our sense making is to get all of those different bits and pieces even the most difficult stuff that we need to hear okay and I avoided difficult people for years notice it was always them who was difficult not me um <laughs> I avoided diff- and I think there was something about I needed to bring those difficult people difficult people into the room do, do you think it's something sorry James I'll throw this at you James do you think it's something okay. about uh worrying about being vulnerable yeah I, I'm more and more wondering and pondering over whether um a sort of a traditional um approach to hierarchy then and the need for control is something that bears its weight on a lot of leaders uh that they feel that if they are not in control of what people are saying and doing that somehow they're not a very good leader um which i'm sure none of us would actually say out loud and uh, write down on paper as who we are but um i do wonder about that and i think education is a perfect uh, system really whereby we can explore that isn't it so um, teachers in the classroom I'm sure none of the teachers feel that their main role is to control children um, but I'm sure that there's quite often occasions where they feel that if they do not feel that um, control um, that they may feel like they're not being such good teachers and again I think coaching as a strategy is really interesting in this context like how do teachers coach the children and the students mm. that they're working with how do children coach each other uh, what sort of strategies can they use um so that we employ hierarchy where it's necessary and useful um but not as um a sort of background or something that we value in the system more than the learning itself and that comes back to that culture of trust doesn't it for innovation mm. yeah it does and it's funny because when you said about hierarchy, and I think you said um, you were challenging my me, I didn't. See, I didn't see it as a challenge. Accidentally, because, Larry. No, I, I don't see it as a challenge. I totally agree with you because I think you said something about hierarchy and roles. Um, I was not arguing, by the way, for some kind of mass cooperative. It won't <laughs> work. There is a role for the head teacher. There is a role for the senior leadership team. Um, but it's about being clear, as you said, about what that role is and how they play it. OK, it's not it, it would be chaos. It would be absolute mm. chaos. So when I say democratizing strategy, by the way, I'm not saying we go out there and we go, what does anyone fancy doing, you know, over the next three years? Let's get it all. It wasn't that at all. I think you were right to refine my mad thinking to say, actually, what are the rules here? 
And if we play those roles well, and I think Elaine, you've hit on this about vulnerability. If you you can you can get great confidence, trust, and respect in yourself as a leader, if they they still know that you are the leader, but how you play that role by showing your authentic self and showing your vulnerabilities. I mean, all the research says that if leaders show their vulnerabilities, it engenders greater respect from people and trust and trust. So I think you're absolutely right, James, with that. I think that there is a need for the hierarchy, but be clear about what that role is and how it's and how it is played. Um, and I'd love your, you know, bottom line solution as a coaching approach, isn't it? Which still and 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 this word control is really interesting because control is very different from controlling. And actually, I'm quite comfortable with. I think you've made us quite comfortable with control. Um, where it's a word that a lot of us feel a little bit of discomfort about. Um, but it, it's whether you feel there is, you know, how you get a sense of control. If you're controlling, I'm not sure that's the right kind of control. <laughs> Whereas I think if you if you know that um, everything is as it should be and going as it where it should be going then I might feel a sense of control, even though it's not all down to me and I'm not in charge of it all. You know, I find this whole idea really fascinating. And well done, Chief Provo uh, Provo Provoker, Provocateur. I can't remember how to say your name, Larry, sorry. Um, <laughs> I find this whole idea really interesting that um, in control and the idea of control, that, that we are somehow mitigating risk, um, and I've been thinking about it when I'm thinking about self-evaluative strategies in the school. How am I going to ensure improvement, whole school improvement here? Um, and I've been trying to work out how do I measure how effective things are? How do I measure the impact of what we're doing here? And how do I make sure that all aspects of school life, that those measurements can be compared in some way so I can make a strategic decision um, about mitigating risk to these children's uh, to these children mm. and their learning. How do I go about that? And so that idea of control really does play a part in that. I'm finding um, because I do want to be as strategic as I possibly can, because that's best value for money for the um, school's budget and it's best uh, um, use of our time, so that the children get uh, the best value added within the these uh, years, these special and uh, short years that they have with us with us at primary school. Um, so being strategic is really important. Um, yeah, I don't know if you've got any little life hacks, Larry, about uh, measuring improvement <laughs> and uh, becoming strategic in that way, or Elaine. I'm still battling now before, before I start to think about being strategic, which is my lifelong aim. Uh, to be strategic and is always balanced with the day-to-day -day running of things is this idea of control versus chaos and that innovation that I'd never thought before until Larry just spoke that control might be a part of innovation and that has really that has struck me now and I may not be able to speak ever again about things because I'm thinking um, it comes back, James, to what you said at the beginning with the two groups of people, um, the people who were, who had keenly felt the uncertainties uh, to the point that it really did have a detrimental effect on their their well-being, um, 
that they may be seeking control to feel safer, but that that control can still be a part of innovation. So, James, I have completely not answered your question about strategy because I'm still thinking about that idea of control. <laughs> In some yeah. collaborative pondering, I like it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I mean, I'm being sparked off in all kinds of directions now, but I, I, um, I don't know if I have an answer, James, to your question either. But I do have a thought, which is there's a wonderful phrase about building the bridge while you're walking on it. But And that's actually the job that we're doing every day in education. Because as senior leaders in particular, well, actually any leader, because you're a first-line leader, you're responsible for that bit, and you should should be building that bridge as much as anyone else. So, And we've almost got to keep those two ways of being. And that's why I like the phrase building the bridge, because you can constantly say, am I building the bridge while I'm walking on it? But am I still walking on it? Or have I jumped off the bridge to build another bridge? You know, it's all that sort of stuff. And and I actually, keeping those two lenses in mind is really good because there isn't strategy and operational, is there? Because ultimately one informs the other. Mm. Totally. So as I'm building my strategy, I've got to be in touch with everything that's going on. Otherwise, what's my strategy based on? If we take ourselves off to an island for a week to build a new strategy, what's happened in the week while I've been away? Yeah. And yeah, all of that. So it was kind of that thing of, you keep, you keep those two lenses in mind as a leader. And then the other thing I tried to relate it to, James, to, to not answer your question, was, <laughs> was the, way, the other way you do it is a colleague of mine once said, if you want to know the quality of your own leadership, look at the tier of leaders below you or the tier of people below you in the hierarchy, and the quality of them will be really saying a lot about the quality of your own leadership. And so there's also something about really being prepared to enable people. In fact, my number one job is to enable the team of people that I lead to do a brilliant job. So what am I doing to enable them to deliver and to do a brilliant job? Um, And there's a wonderful series on one of the streaming sites, Apple or one of the others, called uh, New Amsterdam. It's a true story about a hospital in New York. Oh, yeah. I love it. and the leader there goes around all the time and someone goes into someone's room and they say, oh my goodness, this is going on, this is going on, this is a problem, massive problem, can't get these drugs, can't get this done. No. And he, he just goes, he goes, how can I help? Yeah. And what I love about that is, you know, basically the question you're asking is what leadership do you need from, what do you need from me right now? Because do you want me to solve the problem? Do you want me to take the problem away from you? Do you want me to just let you vent? Do you want me to ask you some really clever coaching questions? What 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 would be most helpful? In fact, it's probably the best question a leader could ask. What would be most helpful right yeah. now? To which the person's immediate response will be, I don't know, probably. And then you've got to help them unpack that. That was my non-answer to your question. Oh, thank you all. But I think this that's the perfect part, really, for us to just pause now. I mean, what a fantastic discussion, conversation. Thank you all for joining us. I mean, it's been so interesting. What what comes across more than anything is how innovative we all are and want our uh, settings to be. I think that's the key moving forward. And I really took what you said then, um, Larry. I think for us, it, we've got that important role to enable our team, to encourage ideas and innovation moving forward. I think that's the key. But I just want to thank you all. Thank you for joining us today for our innovation podcast.
Thank you. Gobeithion eich bod wedi mwyn hair bennod hon o bodlediad yr Academy Arwynyddiaeth. Tan ysgrifiwch ar Spotify, podlediadau Apple neu Google a pheidiwch byth â cholli penod. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leadership Academy podcast. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts and never miss an episode.